from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Welcome sports fans. Welcome statistics fans. And welcome business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. My favorite two hours of the week, where all three of my favorite topics collide. My name is Eric Bradlow. I'm a professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here joined by my co-host this morning, Professor Shane Jensen from the Statistics Department, and Professor Adi Weiner from the Statistics Department. And over the next two hours, we're going to talk about what's happening in the world of sports. We're going to talk about it from a statistical perspective. We're going to relate it to business. And of course, this is a call-in show. So we hope everyone hops on the line. Calls one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six, or emails us at businessradio at siriusxm dot com. Our producer Matt is waiting for your emails, and of course, you can also follow us on our Twitter handle at wmoneyball. And actually, it relates to the topic. Normally, in the first half hour, guys, we throw it out to what caught your eye in sports, but we actually have a p- Twitter poll up on at wmoneyball about the Cavs Celtics trade. So I think. As the host today, I'm sitting in this seat. I have to preempt what caught your eye in sports, but we're going to get to lots of other stuff. So let me just repeat for our fans out there, and I'd love to hear from you at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight sixty six. Who you think won the trade? But just to remind everybody what the trade was, since it just happened last night, Kyrie Irving, uh, former number one pick, number one overall pick in the draft five years ago. Five years ago, yep. it was, yeah, he was the number one overall pick in the draft. Is going to the Celtics. And in return, the Cavaliers are getting Isaiah Thomas, as everybody remembers, the five foot nine player that had an amazing breakout year this last year. By the way, just so everybody knows, over his career, has higher points per game, assists per game, and rebounds per game than Kyrie Irving. We'll get to that in a second. All three statistics, he's actually better than Kyrie Irving. They're getting Jay Crowder who's a big, tough, defensive-minded player, who, who shot 39.5% from the three last year, so not a bad three-point shooter. They're getting a center, who was the Celtics' number one pick last year. And maybe the most important part, the Nets' unprotected number one pick next year, who, you know, the Nets stink, so that could be a top-five pick. So it's almost Well, it has to be a top-six pick, by the way the lottery works, assuming they're a bad team but it could very easily be the number one pick. So why don't we start out with that? Shane, I'll turn to you. Remember, Kyrie Irving for Isaiah Thomas, Jay Crowder, their big center, and the Nets' number one pick. Who do you think won the tra- won the trade? Well, without knowing, like, I, I guess without knowing all the details and, and following basketball super closely, I would say Cleveland won the trade. I, I mean, so... Maybe maybe I'll I'll answer your question with a question. That's fine. What um what is Kyrie what is the downgrade from Kyrie Irving to um Isaiah Thomas that justifies this extra stuff going? Yeah, they're ha- to right. Cleveland, right? I mean, I mean obviously there's an understanding despite the statistics that you th- just threw up, there must be kind of a, an understanding that Kyrie Irving is a superior player to Isaiah Thomas. Or else, why throw in this other valuable stuff? Yeah, so a couple things. Um, one is, Kyrie Irving is thought of as, even though um, Isaiah Thomas scored more per season this year, 
Uh, most people think of Kyrie Irving more as this kind of unstoppable offensive force that when he gets hot can basically flame anybody. And that's what happened in the NBA Finals two years ago where, you know, basically he took over a couple of the games and he can win you a game offensively, single-handedly. Although, according to advanced metrics, he's one of the 10 worst defensive guards in the league. Kyrie Irving, an awful defensive guard. But on the other hand, you have Isaiah Thomas, who I'm not a fan of for exactly the reason He's five foot nine. Five foot nine players get injured. By the way, he's injured right now. You may remember when the Celtics played the Cavs in the Eastern Conference Finals, Isaiah Thomas, I don't think, played the last game. He got injured in the series. And that's what happens to five foot nine guys. They get injured. So I think most people think and also Isaiah Thomas is twenty nine, which doesn't sound old, but it's old for a five foot nine guy that's built on speed. Who had a breakout year last year? Yeah, but it's still twenty nine. Well, no, I'm saying thinking forward. Yeah. And Kyrie Irving despite we all know him at one of the you know top players in the league, is 25. So the idea is Cleveland, sorry, uh, Kyrie Irving has his best years ahead of him. Isaiah Thomas, best his years best behind. years were behind him. And, by the way, Isaiah Thomas, this is why good for Cleveland, Isaiah Thomas only has one year left on his contract. Kyrie Irving has two. So from both teams' point of view, it's good because LeBron only has one year left on his contract in Cleveland, so he may opt out. So basically, this I view this as Custer's last stand. Cleveland is going to try to get one more championship with LeBron James because he's said, I mean, he's not said, everyone assumes he's leaving Cleveland. Let's stack the team. They'd sign Derrick Rose, by the way, which you may forget. They have Derrick Rose now on Cleveland. They got Isaiah Thomas. They got Jay Crowder. Let's get everybody we can get onto Cleveland. They're thinking of signing Dwayne Wade, is the rumor now. He's going to get bought out from Chicago. Let's give him the all star team for one year, give it the best shot. Then LeBron won't be on the team. We can dump Isaiah Thomas. We can dump Derrick Rose, get rid of all these old veterans, and, you and we'll a... start a fresh. And you have the Nets' number one pick, and you have your number one pick. Adi, what do you think? Well, I am thinking much more in lines, not in the long term, but in the short term. Yeah. Are they a better team now that they've added Isaiah Thomas and, uh, and lost and Kyrie? And Jay Crowder. And, and Jay a lot Crowder. of people say he's the defensive player you need to cover a Clay Thompson or a Steph Curry. Okay, or so, Draymond Green, more, so, more probably. So the real question is, what's the gap between Kyrie Irving and Isaiah Thomas? That's per Shane's point. Yep. And, yeah. and I don't really... And I mean... Well, I just told you from... See, this is interesting about stats and metrics. By the way, if you want to join the conversation, you want to tell us who you think won the trade, please call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. This is Wharton Moneyball, and I'm Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner this morning. So how could metrics... We have three metrics. I understand they're not the most advanced metrics. Points, rebounds, assists... Isaiah Thomas, higher career number. I, I, don't, I mean, I think for basketball, those three numbers mean so much less than, than any three numbers you can use in other sports that I, I'm just not at all even interested in knowing what they are. <laughs> no, more, no, 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 there are say, no, the big there, there three are numbers. There are numbers out there in no, other sports But think about the big three meaningful. numbers. T- think about in every sport, you've got your big, num- your big three numbers. Ba- you know, batting average, home runs, RBIs in baseball all week, but... They're still better than the three numbers in basketball. The three big numbers for, say, quarterback, they have problems too, but they're better than the three numbers in basketball. I mean, you can come up with terrible, but if you talk about which three numbers in sports, it's actually, I'm, I'm segueing into That's an interesting discussion. Oh, no, no, okay, is, so. is, the, is the most potentially confounded by other factors, I, don't I think... would say, in basketball. And by the way, just before Shane responds, because I see the skeptical look I on love it. We're getting uh, Shane's face. By the way, let's just also remember, you guys may remember a couple weeks ago, Kyrie Irving demanded a trade. Oh, right, right. So he wanted out. That's which another means, thing. So, you know, he wanted out anyway, and <laughs> yeah. you got what 
You got yeah, an all-star I mean, I, player, you got a, first a good round, fit player, and a first-round yeah, pick. I, I, I mean, you know, congrats, I guess, congrats to Kyrie Irving for, like, somehow. I mean, he didn't have much leverage in this situation. He had none. And he was able to force himself into a, probably from his point of view, a better situation. Do you think, but just an, another interesting thing from a, I don't know if it's a statistical perspective, but... Have you ever heard of two teams that are one and two in the same conference doing a trade like this? Just remember, everybody, Boston and Cleveland matter. have been the top teams. Well, it doesn't you- matter in the sense. It's not like baseball, where only one team can be the winner, and then and it confers advantages that you really, really would like. Well, only one team can go to the finals. True, but you but but the top two teams easily are going to go to the playoffs, and so no, well, no, right. but they're playing. That's not what they're playing for. But Both Audie, are- you you realize that? I mean, these these are the two teams that know they're going to be probably facing right. so each other in June anyway. So I know I, I understand. So it's not like there's a whole season of uh, of of competition that they're essentially worrying about. They're no, worrying about the playoffs, but right. they're worrying about this head to head matchup, right. they're and, they're, right. and therefore yeah. conferring an advantage to each other is obviously right. But I think a, a I think I think they should I, be concerned. I think the about. Cleveland's looking at the Warriors, and the Celtics are looking at Cleveland. That's exactly right. That is a hundred percent right. And I think, but I also think what many teams are doing, and this is why I want to make a segue from this uh, discussion. What many teams are doing is saying, we got one more year in the East that we have to deal with LeBron. So he's probably going to the West. Who knows? The Celtics are saying, we've got Kyrie now. Hopefully, he's going to sign an extension for the long run. Even if we're not better against Cleveland, which I agree, Celtics are comparing themselves to Cleveland, Cleveland to the Warriors. Two, three, four, five, six years from now, we got two great draft picks this year, Jalen Brown and um, Jason Smith. They drafted really well the Celtics the last couple of years. We're going to add Kyrie Irving. We're going to be the Cavaliers of the next five years. We'll give Cleveland yeah. 2017-18, and the That's next right. five are ours. And, yeah. and they are stacked for the They're future. They're stacked. Yep. It's interesting because it's almost, it's almost as if this was a positive sum trade. So yeah, usually we think of a, you think of a trade as being zero sum, whatever, and then we talk about winning and losing. But I think ultimately this is almost like a real business application. A good business negotiation ends with both sides winning. And, I, and by the way, I think if you look at uh, at least our producer Matt Datz, uh, he put up our stats on Morton Moneyball when we started the show. It was fifty one percent for Cleveland, forty nine percent for Celtics. Uh, so there's obviously both sides think they, and maybe even our fans think that they've gotten a pretty good uh, trade sides, as well. And it's really just the metric that you're looking at. Let me ask you before we leave this topic, but I want to ask a question: How would you forecast? So let's talk. Was this since it's Morton Moneyball, and we're a statistics show? The value of that Brooklyn number one pick. Let's imagine it even turns out to be a number one pick. And just to remind everybody, this is a 25. If they're, if they're the worst team, matter of fact, let's do the following math. Let's say there's a 75% chance they're the worst team in the league. That's probably overestimating, but let's say it's a 75% chance. And the number one team, the worst team, has a 25% chance of getting the number one pick. So you multiply those two things together, and you're somewhere around a 20, obviously around a 20% chance of getting the number one pick. Let's imagine for a moment that that event happens. How would you forecast the quality of that player compared to a separ- a different number one pick, but recent? It's not like he was from 30 years ago, Kyrie Irving. Like, how would you try to balance those two things out? How would you make a forecast of the quality of a number one pick who's yet to play in the NBA? Well, I mean, historically, number one picks are generally terrific, and there's a fairly big gap between number one and number two. If you look, look historic, and that's because of, of, obviously there's exceptions, but there's a number of number ones mm, who've just cleaned up. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know so, if I'd even grant you that. I mean, I'd grant you the terrific part. 
I don't know if if you went past the past 10, 20 years and you looked at number one versus number two, whether you'd actually see a drop off, like 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 a predictable positive difference between number one and number two. I, oh. I can come up with a lot of examples. Well, the sure, of times there, there where are the number two but... player turned out to be better. You know, than the number it, one. It, I don't. I don't think there's that much certainty at one versus two. Oh, it's not certainty, but it's in, in aggregate. The average is. I mean, this uh, is. This is. I mean, these are these are well known plots of of value per draft. Well, if they're well known, I mean, we we we'd actually have a plot like that. I, I don't think it's that well known. Basically, that the number one is discernibly better than the number two over the last twenty years. Right, and also, by the way, let's also say I made a false assumption, which is that. Guaranteed. Let's make this comparison. I just said at best case, there's a twenty percent chance. So that oh, means know, there's small, also there might be a seventeen percent chance, or maybe it's a little higher, that they end up with the two pick, then the three. We have to integrate over that distribution. The only thing we do know is it can't be worse than six because yeah. of the way the lottery works. But if I just told you right now that was the number six pick. I think you'd all be saying, "Forget it." That's not a great trade for no, Cleveland and, and, anymore. And, and, and none of these, none of these top picks are certainties by by any stretch. But if you look at, at across sports, the the sport that has the the biggest gap between one and two, it is basketball. And I have, and I mean, in, in terms of dollar, in terms oh. of aggregate dollar value, um, in terms of what you, I mean, it's there's huge amount of noise. So I mean, this is what we typically see, it's, it's, it, and that dwarfs that the modest very difference in, in, in gap. But it is the biggest. I mean, without question, without question. Yes, so you looked question. at it. It's, yes. it's bigger than hockey. Oh, hockey is this weird Canadian thing that always gets in the way without of my analysis. Question, Audi, without question, Audi. <laughs> without question, it's better I, I than tend, hockey. Well, I, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound like, a, like an American. Without uh, question, it's better than football. No, ab- absolutely without question, better than football. All right. Without question, better than football. And, and better than and baseball, which is also the number one. Is, is, well, uh, I mean, okay, yeah, baseball, too. yeah. I mean, but baseball, has, baseball, you're so far away from the major yeah. leagues But, but when one you're of the reasons why is it's the draft is short. I mean, it's only a two-round draft. And and there's a, and the standout player and and, and mostly it's listen it, it's if you look through the list of number one players they're they're almost all well known and some of them are the greats now of course there's Michael Jordan who was not number not num- the number one tri- uh, pick and that throws up there are obviously well, counterexamples you know, but the number one but, ones are well known so are the number twos but yeah. but but they're not if you look you can just put them next to each other and see but you can easily see, in in football it's not nearly as predictable the number ones just go down the to- tubes all the time so this is Wharton Moneyball we're here every Wednesday morning live eight to ten Eastern and replayed throughout the week this is Eric Bradlow and I'm here with my co-hosts this morning Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner we're talking about the Kyrie Irving for Isaiah Thomas and Jay Crowder and draft pick trades. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. And thanks to our producer Matt Datz for pointing out he's right. If the Nets end up with the worst pick, the worst they could do is fourth. Only three teams could jump you. So, right. uh, so again, we still have to enter. I was assuming they were the Nets would be one of the bottom three teams. If they end up the third worst record, they could do no worse than six. But Matt's right. If they were the worst team, they could do no worse than four. So this is going to be a top, top pick for Cleveland going forward. But again, I like Adi's mathematical way of putting it. This could actually be a win-win for both. Cleveland, positive sum. Positive sum. Cleveland is, ba- is banking on this year and maybe some long-run rebuild. And Cleveland and the Celtics are saying, we've got a lot of young pieces already in place. We've got a proven leader and winner in Kyrie Irving. You know what? Maybe we're not better than Cleveland this year, but you know what? 2018 to 2023, those are our five years Cleveland's through. So it is an interesting discussion about how that works. So, guys, let's now make a transition from basketball. And this is the offseason of basketball, but, of course, this grabbed our headlines. Let's talk about a sport that is doing a lot right now, which is baseball. 
And so um, a, a recent stu- – well, let me talk about something that's near and dear. And, Adi, thank you, by the way. Unfortunately, our listeners can't see here in the studio. But if you could, you could see it's taken three and three-plus years her on Wharton Moneyball for someone to counteract the Red Sox hat that Shane Jensen – I wouldn't say always wears because he wears a Patriot hat too sometimes. That is um, true. But Adi is here with a beautiful Yankee hat on. Showing my colors. Showing your colors. So it makes me think... They are the road colors, though. It's sort of weird. That is the road colors. <laughs> but it makes me think about baseball and the Yankees, and also one particular player on the Yankees, Aaron Judge. So I just want to read some stats for our fans here. So in the first half of the season, 84 games, Aaron Judge had a three twenty nine batting average, four forty eight on-base percentage, and a slugging percentage of six ninety one, which means his ops was... About one point, looks about one five. Yeah, it was over 1.1. It was over 1.1 for the first half. His second half, this did not include yesterday, 35, although he had an interesting stat line yesterday, three walks and a hit. He was one for one with three walks and two, and he was right after his fourth at bat because he was on a a strikeout streak, which uh, which is over now. Which which is is over, over. by the way. (laughs) Well, he's got a walk streak of one. Um, He's played 35 games in the second half with a 169 batting average. An ops, uh, ops of on base, sorry, of three twenty nine and a slugging of three fifty five. And actually, by the way, that slugging number of three fifty five is shockingly low. I mean, forget the batting average of one sixty nine. I mean, an ops, a, a slugging of three fifty five is really low. And so, what do you guys think? Downright bad the second half, huh? So is it, it, is, it a home run moment, is it a loss of <laughs> momentum? Is it non stationary? Is he showing his true strength now? Well, let's start with Shane. I, I, let's mean, start I, I, with let's start with the Yankee hater. Well, he's not as I mean he he obviously wasn't as good as that ridiculous yeah. first half. I mean, did anybody think he well, was going to hit like you know 112 home runs this year or whatever he was on pace for for a while? Obvious, obviously, there is some regression to the mean as as there should be. His true ability was not his true ability is probably somewhere in between his first half and his but second. Have you half. ever he's, seen? Have you ever seen? I'm, I'm just trying to recollect. Such a, and I'm not going to put it on the home run derby, whatever. Have you ever seen such a dramatic shift between? And it's not, boy, he's played a quarter of a season yeah. since the second half. It's not like it's five games. Right. It's basically a quarter of a season. He played half a season as a 330, 700 slugging player, and he's played a quarter of a season as a 169, 355 slugging player. Have you ever seen such a dramatic shift in kind of the power numbers of a player one doesn't immediately come to mind but i mean i th- I, I think I-, I expected some regression to me in the second half i also expect i mean you know he you know there's a lot of analytics out there there's a lot of like pitching scouts out there well, he, he they he they figured out a weakness in a in a, in, a, in his swing basically right so well, I, that's the claim i mean so yeah. i actually i do recall uh, dave kingman hitting 36 home runs at the all-star break and then finishing the year with about 42 or some some it was 48 maybe it was but it, it was in the high 40s it, it, but, but it he was did a, he had he, he was on a pace it was it was like he's going to break at that time Ruth's the record, real record right. the, no no maris uh, maris has record. had 61 at that point but yeah kingman had 36 or 37 at the break and he ended up in the Mid, mid to high forties. Oh, well, maybe we'll look that exact. Uh, but that was a that was a colossal but colossal drop in home runs. But Kingman never was hitting for high average like 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 Judge was. So what the what the analysts have said to to follow Shane is that they seem to be throwing throwing him high and outside uh, balls, which he's swinging at, and and that they weren't before. And he's just does he looks like he, he's uncomfortable. Um, and and it's something that Rick Peterson, who was coming on later, might talk about is that the weakness. 
of the power hitters is the high ball that looks like a strike, and they just can't lay off of it. And that seems to be what's happening to the judge. Maybe he'll get his act together and, well, and start doing it. Well, let me ask you, before we transition from that baseball topic to a related baseball topic about home runs, um, how important, forget for the Yankees for a second, and they're in a, obviously both a race with the Red Sox and for the wild card, how important is this last quarter of the season for Aaron Judge? Let me say why. Aaron Judge's numbers last year, which were his first year, weren't good. And then he had a first half of this season that's good, and now he appears to be back to the last year's Aaron Judge. So let's imagine we're sitting here 40 games from now, end of September, early October, and those are Aaron Judge's numbers for the second half of the season. How worried are you? So I'm just trying to think from a data point of view, let's call it we have bad, good, bad. What do you make of that? Like what from a if you're trying to forecast now if we're sitting here at the end of September and those are his numbers for the second half of the season you're trying to forecast his 2018 19, 2018 performance what is a statistician what do you do with that data okay, he is in his rookie year so we do have uh, well last year we have some data. well yes so was, last year was about an eighth of a season that he came up for was, didn't even didn't disqualify him for the rookie of the year it was short um, and his strikeout rate was over forty percent his his minor league strikeout rate was closer to twenty five percent and that's what he was doing in the first half of the year now he's back o- up to forty fifty percent so the question is what is his real major league strikeout level. If he's closer to 25%, he's a 300 hitter, 280 hitter who will hit uh, 40, 45 home runs. If he's a 40, 50% strikeout hitter, we're looking at uh, the second coming of, uh, of, of, uh, of Adam Dunn, and that's not a good thing. Yeah, and I, and I mean, uh, well, one thing I would be worried about is just the variance here. So the, the, this right. kind of inconsistency, like is there something, you know, Psychologically, about Aaron Judge, that he's more prone to st- this, these kind of like long streaks of, of either incredibly good or incredibly bad play. That 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 I guess is a little bit more. That's the, I think the variance is more worrisome than the mean because I really do think that the, his actual long term mean is probably going to be somewhere in between his first half and second half, and there's lots of room for him to be pretty productive. In between those two things. Actually, I, you remember the numbers slightly better than I do. Um, so thanks again to Matt. Um, in 1976, Dave Kingman had 30 home runs at the break uh-huh. and finished with 37. So that's a big difference. That's a yep. big difference between the I two. I just remember that he, we, I mean, that was, he was one of the most titanic home oh. run hitters of all time. And his era, particularly. And by the way, up until the... You, you probably know this stat as well. Up until the potential steroid era, PED use era, he was the player in the Major League history with the most home runs, not in the Hall of Fame, by the way. Uh-huh. He, so Dave Kingman had for many years. Now, I think Rafael Palmeiro, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire are going to hold that record, and maybe Barry Bonds, for a lot longer than Dave Kingman did. But he has something like 449 or something home runs, not, most home runs for a player not in the Hall of Fame. And he also is the owner of one of the most colossally long home runs in, in baseball history that's verified. Because uh, it landed on a, in an actual location in Chicago on a porch. For, th- for, <laughs> so, so, ah, Matt, see, Matt's, Matt's firing the information to us today. Sorry, I was off by seven. He's got 442 career right. home runs. So, by the way, Shane, I want to build on something Shane said from a statistical perspective, because it's a very important point. Because of who the Yankees have and their $200 million payroll every year, can they live with high variance? Yeah. Yeah, so that's my... I want to ask you guys, react to... They'd they'd rather not, I'm sure they'd rather not have it. No, yeah, but we'd they all can, rather have high mean and low variance. They can absorb it much better than a team that 
you know, is depending on Aaron Judge, I guess. You know, I mean, I, could you talk yeah. to our listeners just a little bit yeah. about when I say mean versus variance trade-off and building a team, could you just talk a little bit statistically why you think the Yankees can, you know, withstand that? Well, basically, if you sort of, if you think about, like, having a collection of players that are all, you know, like, like, like even if the Yankees had a whole series of, of, of players like Judge that are inconsistent, um... As long as they're not inconsistent, you know, it's all about how correlated that consistency is with with each other, right? I mean, as as long as they have essentially no correlation or ideally negative correlation, well, maybe not ideally, but no correlation, um, then, you know, if Aaron Judge is down, then a a few of the Yankees are up and they still have a lot of productivity. It's an interesting question. I I was hoping you were going to get to the correlated question here. The question is, when Aaron Judge potentially is down... Does he drag down? You know, this is the old lore of old-time baseball. You know, you need the protector in the lineup. When one player's down, it affects the players around him. By the way, Gary Frazier doesn't seem to be having any trouble right now. And Sanchez. I mean, Todd Frazier. Uh, Todd Frazier and Sanchez. Sanchez especially. Sanchez, Sanchez is hot right he's now. He's hot. He hit two so last he, night. Yeah, so he doesn't seem to be uh, being affected by the potential yeah. slump of Aaron Judge. Sorry, Todd Frazier. What do you think about this? I mean, are you... How are you going to protect Judge going forward? Are you worried about his extremely high variance? And as you're saying, there's both strikeout rate, but of course what was most impressive in his first half wasn't so much his numbers, was his batting average of balls in play, which I know you covered in Morton Moneyball my son was pleased to hear about that. He hits the ball extremely hard. So when when he does put the ball in play, it is more likely to be a hit. Like like Mike Trout, it also does it um, because he hits line drives and he hits, he hits them hard. But he doesn't. He's not going to do anything if he's striking out, and that's the thing that's a terror, um, and it's a problem. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, basically, I think his floor is as Adam Dunn. I mean, I, yeah. I think you described it right. If he's a little more athletic than Aaron Dunn than, than Adam Dunn. Sure, that's right. Um, but I, I, and I think he. He on a team like the Yankees, they can still essentially kind of move him around and protect him a little bit during these streaks. But where is he going to be in the lineup? One of the things that the Yankees have done this last since the All Star break is uh, is do poorly, um, and part of that is you have this dead wood sitting in number three, number four in the lineup, and it's been just rally killing. And yeah. uh, fortunately, he still walks. But uh, I mean, his uh, his batting average is one sixty nine, and his uh, OBP is three twenty nine. That's that's a hundred and seventy point, uh, hundred sixty point gap between the two. That's at least he's still walking a lot. So that means that the players behind him do have runners on base when, and that does add. add and but, by the way, his ops for the entire season on is still base over a thousand. Still over a thousand. So yeah. He's still not, leading the American League, right? So let's not put the guy into the woodshed. No, but yet. I mean strategically, do you think that Girardi is Girardi is not doing a good job of kind of moving him down in the lineup? Yes. Girardi is extremely slow to change. Now, if you want to get me angry, I can start talking about Girardi. I kind of do. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I scream at the television. Because I've just noticed, I, I mean, obviously, I, I watch the Red Sox a lot. And Farrell, you know, I mean, he's got all kinds of... I mean, I, I could probably rant about him as well, but... Um, he does move players around a lot in the lineup as, as they're sort of, you know, like based on kind of how they're doing in the last couple Well, uh, weeks. this is something that, that I think, George, I mean, the lineup moving is, is secondary, but it's his management of the bullpen that drives me nuts. I think everybody right. would agree with that. Guys, before we, um, since we're almost done with our first quarter of the show, I want to stay on baseball and home runs. There's an interesting article on ESPN that came out, and I'll spend three or four minutes on that. The title of the article is 73, 61, or 37, 
what's the real home run record anyway? And just to, for our fans out here, 73 is obviously the number Barry Bonds hit in the PED era. 61 is obviously the Roger Maris record of 61. What 37 is, is it's actually Dave Kingman in your 1976. The reason why they're saying that one is his exceedance of all other players was greatest, meaning the rate at hit which he was hitting home runs compared to the league average is the greatest in the history in modern era of right. baseball. So, oh, right. no, Actually, no, you have to categorize that properly. Usually when we talk about the modern history, we're talking about 1920 yeah. and on. That, that statistic is post-integration. Ah, so that's, sorry, thank you. Totally that's, that's, different that's totally, And the other number they give yeah. is 43 for Matt Williams in 1994, who hit a rate at least higher than Roger Maris. So the question over is... Short, over, over a short, short over a strike short season. Strike short in season. So... What's the real home run record? Nadia, I know you've done some analysis. What's the right way to think about the home run record? Well, the, the, the real issue, of course, has to do with what do you do with the guys at the top. And that is a not statistical thing. That's really just a, almost a moral, ethical um, kind of quandary that we're in. Uh, but the other things, uh, other records have to do with, with things that are much more measurable. So Matt Williams, he played a short season. And I don't consider that a record because deviances in, in short seasons are much relative to the size are much more. He's looking at a home run rate, and that was a very high rate for a full for a partial season it's just not that impressive and Aaron Judge was hitting home runs at a higher rate over his half a season yeah we why don't, do we, we arb- don't think right, of you that. can't arbitrarily so, pick so, a yeah. now but I do like the idea of comparing it to the mean of, of all of all time and if you do that I mean Babe Ruth was almost he has the what I consider the most standard deviations it record in sports in terms of the distance between the what he did as a record and and to what was average measuring oh, he was standard more units. home runs than, than some teams oh by a factor right. of three right yeah. so he's he has the only record in sports history that I know of that has a ten standard deviation uh, ten ten standard deviations uh, because he was so so many more than just basically everyone else and just it was like he was playing a different sport which I think in reality he was um, the idea that uh, that somehow uh, the competition wasn't as strong in in 1927 is is really only partially true. Yes, uh, uh, there was only 110 million people in the country, not 300, and now there's it's almost an international. On the and other they, hand, and they kept a subset of people from. Playing. Yeah, that's true. Yes. Uh, they did, but it, but it's not. It's uh, in terms of numbers, it's not as it's not as, as that great. I mean, the uh, the infusion of, uh, of of new players into the league with African Americans into the league took over many years, and and um, and it's never been more than 10. percent I think I think in in uh, in terms of pitching, at least, uh, I think the height in the in the heyday in 1970s uh, was. It was about 18, 17%, 18%. But it's an international sport. On the other hand, there's so many other sports to compete against. And and back in the in 1920s, it was baseball in America, and that was it. I mean, there was no so, real football to, to stand, or basketball was was in its infancy. Um, they do play hockey. As, wait, as wait, wait. The rel- well, sorry, I, I'm, I'm not sure how the relative popularity of the sport in America fits in. Oh, in this. terms of its, great, its greatest athletes yeah. um, oh, uh, being oh, spread around. Yeah, 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 sports are going through. So, guys, we only have about a minute before the break. Just to, you know, I'm going to put you on the spot. What, why not? What do I you consider the home run record? I mean, our fans here on Wharton Moneyball want to know what you consider the home run record. And I'm t- the home run record, it's pretty easy, 73. And I'm going to agree. 73. Barry Bonds hit 73 home runs. That's more than anyone else has hit in a by season of baseball. Far. By far. And yeah, he used PDEs, and no. I'm just not well, going to... Well, I mean, not by 
far, there was a 70 there was home a run 70, season right. and a 67 and a 66 and a 63 and a 61. And he did it, I believe, walking 190 times. Well, that, we could talk about how great <laughs> that season was, and that's absolutely true. Right. Regardless of whether there were PEDs or not, which... He I, hit a I, home run every six times he hit the ball. It was, it was, it was an unbelievable offensive performance. Uh, it's just ridiculous. And, I mean... We probably won't see that again for Well, I can say I, I can say I don't consider it the home run record, but I do understand why it is the home run record. I just don't consider it. I understand. But that's fine. I understand it's, it's what it is. It so this has been the first quarter here of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, we have an exciting show with two guests coming up, one in our 8.30 hour, one in our 9 o'clock hour, and then the last half hour we're probably going to talk some football since we have football coming up. So please come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks to our sound engineer and associate producer, Danielle Bruno, for bringing us back with some exciting music this Wednesday morning. Again, this is Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. We were talking primarily about baseball the first half hour, but we also spent time the true home run record and how to look at that, but we also talked about the Kyrie Irving trade. But we're actually very fortunate uh, for this next half hour to have Scott Kazmar. Uh, Scott is an assistant editor at Football Outsiders, where some of his work is featured on and content on ESPN. Scott has written for Bleacher Report and has also done some statistical work for ProFootballReference.com. So, Scott, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to uh, talk to you. Um, first, you know, we always like to start with all of our guests before we get into the details. We know you've done a lot of work on quarterbacks in the NFL. We wanted to get, like, how did you get to where you are? So could you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of, you know, how you deter- decided to apply your mathematical skills to studying sports? Uh, yeah, I mean, typically when you're on the Internet, they say don't read the comments uh, in the any article you're ever reading, but... You know, on the Pro Football Reference blog, the people would leave good comments and we would have good discussions. And you know, I used my real name on there, and the owner had my email address, and he contacted me one day based on a comment I made about something I was researching. I uh, just, you know, started kind of as a hobby during high school, just starting to put data into Excel. And then, like I said, this is around early 2000s when sites like Pro Football Reference and Football Outsiders just kind of started coming onto the internet and we started getting some more data out there play by play and uh yeah the owner contacted me from pro football reference about buying data that i researched and you know i didn't know you could make money doing this so i sold him something on uh quarterback start data uh you know it was a decade ago we didn't know which quarterback started which game even back in the 70s and 80s but um you know he's put that together and yeah i started writing some stuff for them uh Decided to write full-time in 2011 for different websites and uh, picked up with FO in 2013. So just to be clear to our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, your now full-time job is to write articles, analytically-oriented articles, it sounds like, in football. Yeah, that's this will be the seventh season I've done that. Wow. Well, congratulations on that. It's uh, uh, You have three 
professional statisticians here and professors who, if they could have a second job, would love to be able to do such a thing. So that's great. I wanted to talk to you about something that we actually posted, uh, thanks to Matt Datz, our producer, something we posted at, at our Twitter feed, at W Moneyball. Um, you actually um, have come up with some recent quarterback tiers. Um, before getting into the details of the quarterbacks, could you tell us uh, why you decided this was an important problem to look at and kind of somewhat about the methodology behind constructing these tiers? Tiers. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a tier-based ranking makes a lot more sense uh, when you're ranking players, especially quarterbacks, um, rather than you know explicitly st- stating with any confidence, you know, this guy's number five, this guy's number eight. You know, I think it's best to kind of layer them into tiers um, based on you know certain qualities that they share, uh, certain you know different levels of caliber, and you know we kind of could argue many different uh, quarterbacks above each other, but you know, I think the point of the tiers is to kind of show that for the most part, these guys in any given year are kind of interchangeable. You know, one guy may have the better season that seat that year just for, you know, reasons that may have nothing to do with actual skill and just, you know, perhaps the health of his teammates, the uh, difficulty of his schedule or what have you. But, you know, generally speaking, consistency is uh, what makes any player great at any position. So, you know, I, I really do favor uh, people with a good track record. Well, since this is Wharton Moneyball and this is a statistics, sports, and business show, we like the idea that there is uncertainty and that, you know, when you have uncertainty, exact rankings, um, you know, don't necessarily reflect someone's ability. And so putting people, blocking people into groups where there's more certainty certainly makes a lot of sense. Could you talk to us a little bit about the data? that went into this? Like what went into actually coming up with your different tiers? And if I read this correctly, uh, there appear to be six tiers of quarterbacks. Um, They're not equal size tiers, but first tier has four, then three, then five, then uh, 10, and then four, and then four. What actually went into constructing these tiers? Yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly not not an exact formula for any of this. Um, You know, it's more or less something I put together on uh, one afternoon on Twitter and, you know, people just kind of eat, eat this stuff up. But, you know, I made sure to include reasoning uh, why those quarterbacks were in uh, each tier. So let me ask a question. So we actually got a couple questions through our Twitter feed, at W Moneyball, which we love getting questions, and they were specifically for you because we posted your uh, quarterback tiers up there. So here's the first one. Um, where would you slot Jay Cutler with him coming in for Ryan Tannehill for the Dolphins? So where where do you see uh, Jay Cutler, who you know was halfway into the retirement bag, he was already working for Fox Sports, Jay Cutler comes out of retirement, he's going to be playing for the Dolphins. Where do you put him in your tiers of quarterback? quarterbacks right i mean this is going to be assuming that jay cutler is healthy enough to play um you know giving him 10 million dollars would suggest that he is but you know based on really cutler is one of the most consistent quarterbacks in the nfl in the sense that he's consistently mediocre um you know he really doesn't ever strive to be more than the 14th best quarterback in the nfl in a given season and that's kind of been his um mo since 2006 uh, i think he's only had one season with a 90 passer rating which is pretty much the league average of uh, the last few years so i think that was with adam gase in 2015 so uh you know cutler i think we put pretty much could put him right in fittingly where ryan Tannehill is at number 18 uh in that whole tier four of guys who you know they could take a team to the playoffs 
They can put up good stats, but you know they need a lot more help uh, than the top 12 quarterbacks in the league. So you know you're looking at Andy Dalton type quarterbacks, Joe Flacco, uh, Tyrod Taylor, Alex Smith, Kirk Cousins, these type of guys. I think you know Cutler. He's going to win you some games on his arm, and he's also going to lose a lot of games by throwing stupid interceptions. So, you know, we have a pretty uh, long-term outlook on how he plays. So I think, you know, if he's healthy enough, uh, you know, he's pretty much the perfect fit for Miami's 8-8 eight and eight dream season. Well, since uh, that's the – I'm not sure that's their dream season, given they went 10-6 and <laughs> six last year. But either way, um, let me now transition to another question from our Twitter feed, at WMoneyBall. And this one's near and dear to my heart, and this was not submitted by me for our listeners out there. Um, the question is about the quarterback you have at number 22, which is Jameis Winston. So, uh, as everybody here knows, I'm a huge Buccaneer fan. As a matter of fact, I will be at the Buccaneers at Dolphins opening game of the season. I'm hoping Jay Cutler throws one of those pick sixes right into the Buccaneers' hands. But here's the question from our listener. How will the addition of Deshaun Jackson and draft pick O.J. Howard help Winston in his third year? So, when you were thinking about Jameis Winston being, let's say, the bottom, roughly, of Tier 4... how were you thinking about the addition of one very established receiver in Deshaun Jackson and a pick, O.J. Howard, who many people thought was top five talent, who somehow slipped down to the Bucks. I think it was at number 18. How do, how do you see Jameis Winston, and how do you think about that? Right. Well, yeah, I, again, I, I base the rankings kind of on the past rather than a projection of where things will be after the seasons. It's more going into the season where things stand. But and obviously, a, any young player has a good shot to move up. Um, you know, Jameis Winston. He's only uh, what 23 years old now. Uh, second, two seasons in. Um, you know, I think in many ways he's kind of Cam Newton's doppelganger. Uh, they both throw very the deepest passes in the league. The only quarterbacks that averaged over 10 yards per throw last season. Uh, they are also the most off-target passers in the league, partially due to the, the distance of their throws. So they make a lot of deep throws. They need big receivers to big in, bring in those deep throws, like Kelvin Benjamin, Greg Olson, Mike Evans. Um, so, you know, not the most accurate passers, but definitely aggressive players, guys that can run and um, make amazing things happen. But, you know, there is a consistency issue in their passing game. Uh, you like to see that corrected. And I think Deshaun Jackson, you know, he's, a perfect fit for Jameis Winston's style uh, to get the ball deep down the field. You know, it should be a huge upgrade over Vincent Jackson, who was just you know too old and injured at uh, the end of his career in Tampa Bay. And you know, O.G. Howard, rookie tight ends generally struggle. You don't usually project a whole lot of production there, but you know, you look at a guy like Hunter Henry catching eight touchdowns last year for the Chargers behind the Antonio Gates. So. And he's a very talented player, and Cameron Brait's a good player. So, I mean, the Buccaneers' offense, offensive line aside, does look pretty loaded. And if Winston can kind of make the third-year jump that you would expect someone of a number-one pick caliber to make, then, you know, he could be the guy that moves up a tier very, very soon. Well, I wish we could do offensive line aside, but either way, we cannot. But we're talking to Scott Kazmar. Uh, Scott is an assistant editor at Football Outsiders. Uh, he's also written for Bleacher Report and some done some statistical work for ProFootballReference.com. Again, this is Eric Bradlow here with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner this morning. And uh, this is Wharton Moneyball. And if you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Scott, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM. 
com. And, of course, uh, you can also submit questions like the two that were submitted to our Twitter handle, at W. Wharton Moneyball. So, Adi, you have a question for Scott? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that I'm looking at your chart, it, it, this is uh, obviously based on past performance, but it's intended to be essentially a future value. So let's take a look at your top four, and this is the question that we've been having in our uh, studio frequently. Brady's number one um, in the past, okay, but now he's 40. And what do you think of that, and, and what is the data analysis that you've looked at, forecast for the future for Brady for this season? Even? And, and just to add, uh, Scott, before you answer Adi's question, just for our listeners, the top four in his ranking are uh, Tom Brady, who's, I believe, 40, if not turning 40, Aaron Rodgers, who's now, by the way, not a young player. I'm going to say he's 33, but I'm guessing. Uh, Drew Brees, who is the same age as Tom Brady, by the way. And Ben Roethlisberger, who's got to be 35, 36 at this point. So, yeah, how are you thinking? How does that figure in? The age curve is pretty sharp. Yeah, how are you thinking about age? And, you know, and Scott, you obviously know, as Adi's pointing out, the same stats that we all do. Kind of, you know, Brett Favre had one great season beyond the age of 40, but it just doesn't happen. So how are you thinking about age? Yeah, I mean, like I said, a lot of it's based on the past. I mean, I don't know if those will be the top four quarterbacks this year, but again, generally speaking, I'm very um, strict on you know not moving guys to the top. I mean, some people would move Cam Newton to the top three or so after 2015, but you know, I, I, I've been I've been skeptical of Cam Newton for quite a few years, so I wouldn't have done that anyway. But you know, I kind of like the guys that have just done it for a decade plus, who you know have not been slowing down yet, and usually when it does happen when father time catches up it happens very swiftly which is why brady's season this year at age 40 does carry a lot of risk but you know we still project him to have great numbers and he probably has the best supporting cast that he's had since that 2007 season when he threw 50 touchdowns but you know i wrote brady's player comment uh, in our book football outsiders almanac um and yeah i mean like you said brett Favre had that one year at 40 with the vikings um the other quarterbacks to play full season or not even a full season just to start at least 10 games in their 40s the only other players to do that are Warren Moon and Vinny Testaverde. Well you bring up a great point by the way Scott which we talk about at Wharton Moneyball all the time which is you know say well look at the data well you just pointed out that's partly what happens 40 year old quarterbacks don't start and so it's not like there's a hundred years of play of quarterbacks who have started beyond age forty because most of them get yanked for you know poor arm strength, lack of yeah, mobility. Bias. Yeah, they, all kinds of things happen that they don't even get to play at age forty. So, so let me yeah. Uh, yeah so Scott, let me ask um, maybe a similar question in a slightly more general way. So you've got these like your first three tiers, tier ones, these kind of first ballot hall of fame locks tier two is consistently trustworthy tier three is kind of high peak play it basically encapsulates the top 12 quarterbacks or so um and and looking at the rankings i I don't think there'd be much disagreement that those are the top 12 quarterbacks in the league which one do you think actually going into next season has the most chance to sort of drop down a tier or two well i think you definitely have to look at andrew luck just for health reasons alone um you know Two years ago, he had his worst season. Uh, he had lacerated kidney, but even before that happened, you know, he just wasn't playing too well. And you know, this arm injury, shoulder, it's, it goes back to the third game of that season against Tennessee. So, I mean, he's been dealing with that. And you know, you're talking about possibly starting the season on the pup list, which would be the first six games he would miss if that happened. So, I mean, it's definitely concern there, but you know, it just kind of shows the 
um, problems that Ryan general manager Ryan Grigson had in building out the team for Luck, who was you know the most hit quarterback in the league the first uh, three years. And, you know, I think you're seeing similar things Carson Palmer. Well, that's what uh, I was going to go, Scott. I was surprised you didn't list Car- – Car- I mean, not that there's anything wrong with Andrew Luck, because I agree, because of injury. I thought you might have listed Carson Palmer. So, yeah, please continue about your thoughts about him. Yeah, obviously age is a big issue. I think he's going to be 37, 38 by the end of December. So, I mean, that's a big issue. He was the most hit quarterback last season. Um, so, I mean, the offensive line definitely has some questions. And Bruce Arians – style of offense you know makes quarterbacks hold the ball longer uh, go downfield so i mean that all plays a factor as well and you know like i said when quarterback old quarterbacks fall off it's usually very uh, quickly so i have to ask you a question given that we're here at the wharton school in the great city of philadelphia um you're not a big fan, it says here. Not my kind of quarterback. You're not a big fan of Carson Wentz. Um, you know, Wentzylvania has taken over uh, Philadelphia and the city, and lots of people love Carson Wentz here. Could you say a little bit about why he's not your type of quarterback and why right now you have him in the, you know, not the bottom tier, but the one just above that with Sam Bradford, uh, Hoyer, um, whoever's going to start for, well, we know who's starting now for the uh, Broncos, Trevor Simeon. But uh, how are you thinking about Carson Wentz? Yeah, I mean, again, he has one—he has one year under his belt, so there's obviously plenty of ways, you know, a lot, many of ways this can go. But just based on what we've seen so far, uh, you know, I think he plays in a system that I'm not particularly fond of. You know, Doug Peterson coming from the Chiefs with Andy Reid, you know, the West Coast offense, lots of screen passes, lots of horizontal passes. Um, you know, I think you see a lot of yards after the catch. I mean, when Wentz had the game against the Steelers, uh, when, you know, the Eagles were 3-0 and and going all the way to the Super Bowl, you know, he had two plays in that game to Darren Sproles that gained about 100 yards after the catch. And that was about a third of his yardage that day. And, you know, I kind of made a comment at the time that, you know, Wentz is throwing, like, the third sh- – like, by air yards, he had the third shortest – uh, throws through the first three weeks of the league and you know like philadelphia just kind of erupted on me after that and but you know the very next game they come out and he throws the deep ball at the end game ending interception against detroit and you know he just didn't get better as the season went on you like to see a rookie get better and i just didn't seem to happen and uh you know i, I just think that style of offense uh and by the way the eagles never had another play game more than 32 yards after the catch after week three so, I mean, you know, those kind of outlier plays just, you know, aren't something you're expecting to see happen a lot. But, uh, you know, I think they have upgraded their skill set uh, at wide receiver, so we'll see what happens this year. But, you know, I still just have questions about the style of play. Well, let's hope they decide to use Torrey Smith and Alshon Jeffrey a little bit different. They throw the ball a little bit farther down the field. So, Scott, let me ask the reverse of Shane's question. Um, if you had to pick a quarterback that you see going upwards, like breaking up into one of the top two or three tiers, anybody that you like, you know, based on the data you've looked at, style of play, the system they're in, maybe the receivers they've got, maybe the offensive line that they've drafted, anybody you see moving up? Like if we're, if we're sitting here a year from now and we're talking to you on Wharton Moneyball, who do, who do you think could possibly break into that top two or three tier? And I'm guessing no one would break into the certain Hall of Fame tier after one season. But who who do you think who do you like going upwards? I mean, I, I like Marcus Mariota a lot. Um, you know, I think staying healthy is just something you you have to uh, look at. Where for him, you know, we were looking at injuries 
he's had three injuries already that caused him to miss starts in his two-year career. You know, that's more injuries than Brady, Manning, both Mannings, you know, Breeze, um, all these quarterbacks from this era, they did not have that many injuries in their whole career that kept them out of the game. So, I mean, that's definitely a concern. But, you know, he really started slow last year, but you see him come on and uh, they have an impressive collection of talent. Um, you know, I think, again, to me, just to make a general point, I think the past decade, past era of quarterback play was dominated by the pocket passer, you know, Manning, Brady, Breeze. But I think what we're seeing the game shift to what's going to kind of be the new wave of quarterback is the guy who can uh, consistently pass from the pocket but can also run around and make things happen. And Mariota can do that. Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson are the best, you know, kind of the best at doing that. And I think Mariota can do that. And I think Dak Prescott, who I really like, I think he's that type of quarterback. And the other guy that we'll have to see if he can fit into that mold is Deshaun Watson, but Bill O'Brien has to actually put him on the field first. Yeah, I was actually just listening to an interview of Bill O'Brien on the way in, and, you know, he's playing Tom Savage. He's Tom Savage is going to start for the Texans this year, and uh, that's what Bill O'Brien has said, and he, he likes the way Savage looks. So it'll be interesting yeah. Be interesting to see, as you said, if uh, Deshaun Watson actually gets onto the field. So, Scott, uh, I want to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball this morning. This has been Scott Kazmer, assistant uh, editor at Football Outsiders. He also writes some work that is featured on ESPN. He's written for Bleacher Report, done statistical work with ProFootballReference.com. Scott, thanks for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so guys, just in the last few seconds, um, it's interesting to see kind of how Scott, who spends time writing about football quarterbacks, thinks about the top tier. So maybe just in the last 10 seconds, Shane, what are your thoughts on his top tier and who do you see moving up? Well, I mean, I, 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 I think I agree on Mariota kind of having the most potential of the sort of maybe like close to bottom half moving into the top half type uh, quarterback. I thought it was interesting to sort of hear, like you know, the, that he feels like the game is kind of changing and is like more facilitating, say the the, the kind of uh, scrambling more quarterbacks. I'm I'm just a little surprised to hear that Newton was he was not as high on Newton because that Newton kind of exemplifies that to me. Well, let me tell you, in the last half hour, I'm going to definitely want to talk about Mariota versus Winston because I got a lot to say about that. But we're out of time for our first half of the show. We've got another half of Wharton Moneyball coming up. So we have a guest, Rick Peterson. So stay with us and please join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-hosts this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. And if you want to join the conversation, we're here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And, of course, we've had a very busy morning on our Twitter feed, at WMoneyBall. So, guys, you know, we spent the first half hour talking about baseball and basketball a little bit. Obviously, we spent the last half hour talking about football. Um, just any final thoughts on 
football and how, you know, while Scott has done a lot of work on, let's call it backward-looking, kind of forward-looking, we were talking about at the break, which violates our rules, about the forward-lookingness of Tom Brady. So, uh, Shane, you had a few thoughts on that about a mixture distribution. Could you say to our fans here what you were thinking about? If Tom Brady is going to stay in the top tier, what could jeopardize that top tier? Yeah, I, I mean, no, I don't think anybody would argue that Brady is not he He is going to go down from this point forward, right? Um, it's just I, I feel like there's two schools of thought out there as far as just kind of how he's going to go down. Some people believe it's going to be kind of a long, slow degrade. I, I guess Brett Favre would maybe be the uh, poster child for that. Um, and other people feel like he's going to fall off a cliff. And I guess Peyton Manning or, or, or some one of these recent uh, players would be would, would be the poster child for that. And I think the reason there's those two schools of thought is that there there is a probability of either of those two things happening. And I think the real key is injury like whether he actually has an injury or not and i mean as he gets older he's more prone to have those kind of injuries an injury would be more likely to kind of put him in the fall off the cliff kind of set of scenarios rather than the kind of long slow degrade set of scenarios i mean something we'll also talk about with our next guest uh, rick peterson is the role that injuries play of course as you get older and of course you pointed out something of course you can do something in other words you can do something about putting him in less positions to get injured either it's through play calling through resting him you know maybe we have another deflate gate which i've said yeah. is the best possible thing for his career Look, if you could tell tom brady garoppolo could play go three and one four and oh and only have to play 12 games and then win the super bowl trust me he'd take it tomorrow he'd much rather play 12 games and win the super bowl yeah and I, I mean i wouldn't be surprised if we see the the next over the next couple seasons again assuming he stays relatively healthy that he kind of gets you know sort of like an nba regular season sort of treatment you know he's used you know say in the yeah i mean maybe he doesn't play in the second half against the cleveland browns and like you, you know stuff like this so i i mean there, there's room there for for him to be kind of you know essentially pamp Pampered. Pampered. My my view about Brady is that he's too old, he's unusually old to have experienced almost no decline. Yes. Which right. means that uh, usually when you have a long decline, it starts earlier yeah. than 40. So I'm actually predicting a much more rapid yeah, drop. Yeah, I mean, what he's so. doing, what, what, you know, what his his lack of decline is relatively unprecedented. I would say it goes, pardon I mean, Brady. Everything Brady's done over the last like you know decade is relatively unprecedented, though. Well, I could talk to you two guys about it, but why not go to an expert, someone that has managed people over their careers, someone that, had, that knows a lot about dealing with injuries and the mechanics of the sport, and maybe that is why Tom Brady is still able to play late into his career. So you know what it's time for? It's time for our call to the bullpen. Here comes the skipper on his way to the mound. That's going to be all for his starter this afternoon. Einstein said it best. It's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. At the 0-1 count, Chipper Jones hit 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data. Warden Moneyball's call to the bullpen with Rick Peterson. So uh, we're now joined by our every other week guest, Rick Peterson, former Major League pitching coach for the Mets, A's, Brewers, and Orioles. He's now also a sought-after motivational speaker and the co-author of Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. So, Rick, uh, as always, welcome to Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. 
All right. How's everybody doing today? Oh, we're doing great this morning, and I'm staring, Rick. You'll be happy at this. Uh, you know my allegiance, though, is with the Yankees, but I am staring here at Shane with his classic Red Sox hat on and Adi with his Yankee hat on. So, Which I ripped a, out for the occasion. It's First a, time. It's AL East Baseball right here on Morton Moneyball. There you go. Stay so, tuned. yeah, so let me ask you a question. I know you follow all the sports. Before we get into the details of baseball, and I do want to talk to you about Aaron Judge and maybe adjustments pitchers have been made, we were just having a discussion about another sport, which I'm, I know you follow as well, which is football, and, you know, Tom Brady being a 40-year-old quarterback. Can you talk about what the role of mechanics in and also off-season training on lengthening somebody's career? Because, you know, he's basically doing something we've never seen in football before well it, it's unmatched without question and 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 for brady this is this is not an uh an off-season program this is this is a lifestyle and i haven't seen his new book yet but his new book coming out i think is going to give like a, a great insight um to his lifestyle but i i did i did meet some people this summer um or one one uh, gentleman in particular who actually has spent some time with brady and and training him and testing him and and this this guy's off the charts. I mean, I mean, you take a look at you're talking about longevity. Who would have ever predicted Nolan Ryan's pitching into his mid forties? Still, still with the kind of stuff that he has. So is that the one guy? Like, if I I was going to ask you as a follow up question, if you could draw a parallel in baseball, would Nolan Ryan be the guy? Yep. And and what 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 allowed Nolan Ryan to do it? Was it his physical ability? Was it his mechanics? Was it his off season training? Was it all of those? Well, I think l- let me start with number one. It's, it starts with DNA. There's no question about it. You, you, nobody's going to outperform their DNA over a long period of time. Your DNA gives you the scope of, of what the what the actual potential is. But after you have that ceiling of potential, you know, there's no question. Nolan Ryan, he sought that potential. I mean, his training regime was was unprecedented at that time for what he did. I mean, he was in phenomenal physical condition. Um, he was he was so disciplined. He was a disciple of his routine. You know, mentally he was off the charts. Um, you know, he's he just, just superior. He he was a warrior. You know, that, well, I don't know how else you can say it. What the do fact you s- that he could stay healthy? I know you obviously during your time both as pitching coach and pitching development. Obviously, you were one of the pioneers in baseball mechanics. So, could you talk about the role that mechanics also play in longevity? You know, even if your DNA is great, maybe your work ethic is great, but you know, if you're not releasing, I, I'm just repeating back to what I've been listening to you for three years on. If you're not releasing yep. that baseball, if the foot isn't in the right place you know it's gonna you know especially with the number of tommy john surgeries we see now can you talk about the role of mechanics both maybe in baseball and other sports you follow maybe it's we could say the same thing about tiger woods and golf you know it's about these proper mechanics so could you talk about that a little bit to our listeners there's no question you you have to be able to repeat you know golf golf and 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 pitching in particular you know those are proactive movements you know when you take a look at you know, quarterbacks, and you take a look at hitters. Those are reactive movements. You're you're reacting to someone else's movement, being the ball. You know, but when you're talking about a proactive movement, you know, that's just literally you know muscle memory. You know, having the right regime, having the right drills. You know, having understanding the concept of the movement that you're trying to train, and then it becomes an imprint on your mind that you can that you can repeat it consistently, consistently. That outside pressures, external pressures, you know, do, do not come in to to affect. You know your mechanics, if you will. You know your ability to repeat, because obviously your emotional level. You know that heartbeat. You know <laughs> beating through your chest when when the task is to throw the ball 60 feet six inches and hit a target. You know 
you start raising the stakes, and, and now this task becomes more difficult. You know, we always use this analogy. You know, if you had to, if the task was to walk 50 feet on a sidewalk that was five feet wide, without without falling off the edge, you know, how difficult a task is that? That's simple. You would you would be able to do that easily. Now take that same 50 foot walk on a five foot wide sidewalk and put it a thousand feet in the air with no edge. It's the same task. But all of a sudden, you know, your your mind is taking you to a different place because the risk reward obviously, you know, is is so much greater. And and I think when you take a look at, you know, the guys like Tom Brady, like you were mentioning, and talking to one of the guys who, you know, who was involved with training him visually, I mean, this guy's mind is in a different place than anybody can even possibly conceive. So how long can how I mean, I'm not that any of us know the answer to this, but how long can a guy like this go? Well, let's let's be honest. Father Time is the eternal winner. He's undefeated, without question. <laughs> so, yes, he is. He's, he's, he's totally undefeated. So at some point, you're, no matter how much you train, you know your body's going to decline. I mean, it's just the it's it's the war of inefficiencies of your your cells repeating and growing and 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 regenerating higher grade cells. But 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 he obviously has the DNA that has gone beyond what most people's DNA will allow them to go. I, I I personally think I think he's going to have a phenomenal year this year. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you had to bet is and we were this is the discussion we were having just before you the just break. Just make Shane smile from ear to yeah, ear. Yeah, this is a radio right. show you can't see. Yeah, it. but let, let me ask let me ask a real question <laughs> here. It. Although I, I like it, Adi. you can uh, feel although it. I like Adi's <laughs> comment. Um, do you see someone at this age since you've been training baseball players for years, especially pitchers? You know, a throwing motion for years. If you had to predict, does Brady have a slow decline? If he's, you know, or does he have a precipitous decline? And if it is a precipitous decline, is it caused by injury? Without without injury, it'll be a very slow decline, in my opinion. You know, but with injury, that, that's going to totally change it. But without without injury, I think it'll be it'll be drip drip drip. It'll be that slow um, for for the for at least I'm saying this year. You know, possibly coming into next year. I mean, there, I, there's a point in time I think that we all feel as athletes that, you know, I feel great, I feel great, I feel great. And, and you might not recognize that little bit of slow climb, the slow decline, and then all of a sudden it's like, wow, I just, I just hit a headwind big time. And it's like, you, you, you know it. I mean, we all, we all know it in our, in our, you know, in our inner beings. You, you may not recognize it. Nobody else may be able to see it. But, but you definitely feel it. And you, and you realize that, man, I, I usually got rid of that ball like, you know, like a split second quicker or – you know, I, as, as I was reading the play, and I'm looking, going through my progression, talking about Brady, and, and it's like, wow, I thought I was right on time, but, you know, I was late. I was a click late. I mean, that ball got intercepted. That, that, those balls don't normally get intercepted. You know, so he'll, he'll, he'll see it without question. But for what he's done to prepare to come into this year, and, 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 how, and the team is better. I mean, that's the other thing about it. The people around him are better. It's not just individuals. Yeah, so we'll get to that. Well, I want to talk about that in just a second, but we're talking to Rick Peterson, former Major League Pitching Coach for the Mets, A's, Brewers, and Orioles, sought-after motivational speaker and co-author, uh, recommend everyone get it, Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. And if you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Rick, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I know Adi has a question for you. So, so Rick, I'm just going to summarize what I into what you've said into almost a prediction that you can measure. You're essentially saying that this year he'll start 
start almost every game. Um, and maybe next year he'll start to come back a little bit. And within a couple of years, he'll be splitting time with the backup. And then in four years, he'll be more or less done. That's what I would call a slow decline. Mm-hmm. And a precipitous decline would be basically he's just not doing it. And uh, he, right. he's just going to be out. I mean, we all know when we see or, that. Or, 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 he, or he has an ACL injury and just never right, comes sure, back. Right, sure. And doesn't come back. Right. So um, um, so I think uh, let's look to see what the, what the next couple of years bring but to, to, to get the answer. But you use these words that I really like because it does jive with a lot of the experts that we've interviewed on our show over the years, um, that the people who succeed have these lifestyles. It's not just, um, it's just not, they don't just train for the season. It's just, it's who they are. And, and when, you, when you describe Brady, that's the first thing you said, and that he doesn't just prepare in the offseason like normal. He, this is the way he is. Can you elaborate on what that, how would you observe that? I mean, what is it, and, and can you give us maybe the rest of the world is, is it a sense of, of... And, and in the spirit of the show, is it kind of, it, 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 do we ever have a hope of quantifying that kind of intensity or whatever you're talking about? Well, you definitely would. I mean, I mean so, so, so what does him, he do? Well, he has he has a he has a visual routine, and that's one of the people that I've met this this summer. Um, it's a visual routine. Um, it, it's it it, it trains uh, neuroplasticity is what it does. You know, so it, it's a visual routine that you have multiple sensors that are in front of you, and and these lights will come on. These patterns of light will come on, like say with say three or four different colors, triangles, circles, squares, and and within. With literally within a, in a you know nanosecond, you have to recognize which of these squares of the, of these seven squares um, or six squares, which of these six squares has a slightly different pattern. So maybe one triangle, the triangles in one are, they're they're all green, and in one it, they'll, they'll all be green, and one will be orange. It'll be that that subtle, and and he has the, and, and the people who have taken this uh, training method, and there's a scoring method to it. He, he consistently has the highest score. Have you Anybody? ever seen this done in baseball? Let's transition to your home sport, if you'd like, I, although you know a lot about every sport, and certainly your book is well, agnostic of the sport. Have you ever seen someone train like this in baseball? Is it been do you, and, and related, do you think it would be more helpful for the pitcher side or the batter side or both? They would train diff- they would They would be both, but they would train differently. Um, so for the batter... You know they've used this in baseball. I have not seen it being used, but they've used it in baseball to to say, okay, this person's visual acuity, he's able to recognize spin at, at 60 feet much quicker than somebody else, or or visually his mind is quick enough to slow down a 97 mile an hour fastball, if you will. So if you don't have that kind of visual acuity, the people who who study the neuroplasticity will say that, you know what. You, the best fastball you're going to be able to handle consistently is 90 miles an hour. You're not going to get 95, 97. So, wait, so Rick, when you talk about this neuroplasticity training, is it is it when you say that Brady is um, off the charts? Is it because he just is, or was he trained to be this way? Combination. He he, he scored very high the first time he took it, my understanding, and and he's had this. He he has his own system for five years. He's had this system, you know. So basically, peripherally. So if you're looking straight ahead, and maybe you turn slightly to the right, and you can see something off to off to your right, so you can train yourself through this system to look straight ahead, and you'll be able to recognize what you just turned your head to see. I mean, you, you'll you'll you can train peripheral vision. 
Because peripheral it, vision is typically very, very, very weak. Though you can't really focus per, per, peripherally. So right. this is a process of essentially extracting information. Which you're, if I were reading you right, you're essentially telling us that Brady is Brady because he can see better than and make sense out of the information. Well, a lot of people claim that, that about Ted Williams, right? I yeah. mean, that was right. the old adage of Ted Williams. Right. And, I, and, and I think I think you're saying something even more impressive, which is that these kind of uh, though obviously genetically you you are given a certain vision and a certain skill set with that vision, but that it is somewhat malleable. You can actually train stuff like peripheral vision you can you can get better you yeah know, but, you, but but all of us probably would never get as good right as Brady. all right yeah. so rick yeah i want to ask you a specific baseball question now let's turn to baseball here we talked about a little bit in the first part of the show but just to get your opinion um obviously with two two of the three of us in here being big yankee fans obviously we have both excitement but also concerns about our guy aaron judge and one of the comments, as you've seen, he had broken the record for consecutive games with a strikeout, which stopped last night. As Adi pointed out, they took him out when he had three walks and one hit, so he wouldn't strike out. At the end, of the, oh, the Yankees were also up thirteen to four. But regardless of that, one of the reasons given for his decline after the break, one reason is, of course, well, it's the curse of the home run derby. <laughs> the other one was pitchers have now got half a year's worth of data on him and have been adjusting. How are you thinking about adjusting to a player who had one of the great first halves of all time and now, of course, he's struggled the last quarter of the season? How, from a pitching coach point of view, how do you see Aaron Judge and what do you think has happened? Well, what, 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 what you see is happening is that he's chasing more pitches out of the strike zone. So his, uh, my, my, my guess without seeing the data is that his 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 ability to solely swing at strikes is probably dropped. His percentage of of swinging at strikes has dropped. He's chasing more pitches out of the strike zone. But why is he doing that now? Is it because they're throwing him more pitches out of the strike zone, or because he's just in a slump? They're throwing more pitches that are that are more um, what do I say tantalizing to him? You know, I mean, it's just like if you have a sweet tooth and you walk into a bakery. You know, you're really struggling to walk out of there without putting some crap in your system, right? <laughs> right? And, and so he, he's getting he's getting fastballs that are about letter high on the inside corner, and it's, and it looks so good at 40 feet. Going back to the TrackMan data, at 40 feet, that's when the, that's when they track like where's the ball at 40 feet. That pitch looks like a strike to him. And when you take a look at how big he is, you take a look over the years, how many great hitters were under six feet. Really go back most. and think about it. Yeah, most. Most. I mean, you, you, you're hard-pressed to name some hitters. First of all, there's not a lot of 6'5 baseball players or above. You know, he, he's bigger than 6'5. Dave Winfield is one of, you know, probably his best comparison. Um, Dave Kingman, you know, for Jim, isn't Am I wrong? John Carlos John Carlos Stanton, isn't he like a mammoth guy as well, somewhere in the 6'5, 6'6 six, six. Six range? Yep, yep. He, he's 6'6, six, six, right. right. And, 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 he, and Judge and, is 6'8. And, and he goes through those streaks as well. You know, so so when Good you point. when your strike zone is that big, you know you start to look at the peripheral of that strike zone is uh, is also bigger as well. I mean, just it only makes common sense. He's he's covering more space than the average hitter that's six foot or less. He's covering so, more space, and so because of that, he's more vulnerable. And and what happens is pitchers. So the complementary pitch to the fastball that's that's letter high on the inside corner, the complementary pitch, right right handed pitcher. Is some type of some type of slurvy, curvy slider, breaking ball on the outer half, and you start to see him chase more of those now, you know, because he's just he he has expanded his own strike zone, 
but I, I would I would be very curious to see what his batting average is when he sw- when he only swings at strikes, and how many of his strikeouts are pitches that he is chasing out of the strike zone. That's a great Wharton Moneyball moment because that's the kind of metric which obviously is now an advanced stat that is available, and uh, that would be as you're saying is you would be more concerned if when swinging at strikes his performance has degraded significantly. I mean, that's two separate issues. One is he's swinging at more non-strikes, but also you'd be concerned if when swinging at strikes, his performance has degraded. Right, ex- exactly. And, and I would be curious of his strikeouts. How many of these strikeouts? I, I, don't, I don't watch every Yankee game. I watch a good bit of it um, if it's on, or when it's on, I should say, on the, on the East Coast. I, don't, I won't watch it if it's on the West Coast but very, very often. But I have, I have very seldom seen him take a strike to strike out they're swinging strikes i can't i can't remember i can't remember one at bat that i can remember of him i, I can't i take that back he took a fastball down and away it was it was literally at the bottom of that kneecap and it was right on the black i mean it was he couldn't have done it much with it anyway he couldn't have, yeah, yeah i mean you might as well tip your hat and take it anyway you're not going to hit it you know, the best you could do is maybe foul it off and get get to another pitch. So let me turn to the actual pitching side of the Yankees. There's something that you have to explain to me and our listeners here on Morton Moneyball. And again, we're talking to Rick Peterson, former Major League pitching coach, author of Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most, uh, on our Call to the Bullpen segment. How can the Yankees have a guy? How can any team? I don't want to be this. This is not a Yankee-centric show, although it is. How could you possibly have a guy that can throw 103 miles an hour, Araldus Chapman, who's lost his role, Who and how is everybody hitting his 103-mile-an-hour pitches? Can you just explain to our listeners here how this could happen? Exactly. So one of the, one of the tools that I, I don't know if there, many guys are using it today, but, but they were using it when I was with the Mets, and many teams were using it as well. It was almost like a bazooka. And they would take it into the batting cage, and they'd use tennis balls, if I remember right, or a, a softball like that, not a, not, a, not a baseball. And they would shoot this bazooka like 115 miles an hour. Well, when you first walk in that cage and they shoot that 115 miles an hour, you, you, it's like the sound of, like, you, you think you're going to break the sound barrier. But you stand in there and you do this on a daily basis, that 115 start, starts to slow down over time. You know, it's kind of like when you're driving. If you're driving in the suburbs and you're and and you're, it's 25 miles an hour, and then you get on on an open road in the suburbs, and it's still 25, and you're like driving 45, and you're like, oh wow, I was like really going fast. Well, and then you get then you go to get on the highway for a long drive. When you first get to 80, you're like, oh wow, that, that this is like really fast. You know, after you're driving 80, 60 seems like 25. You know, because of the speed, you slow it down. So there's so many pitchers in today's game that are throwing this velocity. You know, maybe not 103, but, you know, they're throwing, the, you know, 98, 99, 100. There's more pitches being thrown over 100 miles an hour in today's game. So you're seeing this on a daily basis. I, I, I happen to be with the Milwaukee Brewers on Chapman's his premier day when he came in against us in Cincinnati. And this play, it, the whole stadium, it was, it was like a freak show. I mean, every... Everybody, he'd throw a pitch, and everybody would look at the radar gun and go, oh, you know, our hitters are coming back going, oh, my God, I can't even, how can I possibly hit this? So what do you think's changed? I mean, what, what's, I mean, what's changed is all these hitters are seeing this velocity on a daily basis. That's what they're seeing. And, and, and what, what Chapman has been unable to do, he has been unable to change 
proactively. He keeps trying to do the same thing he did when he was really good, when he wasn't struggling. And that same thing isn't going to work right now because if you just keep pumping in 100-mile-an-hour fastballs one after the next after next and you watch these hitters, they're selling out. Like that homer that Devers hit against him not too long ago, a few days ago, I mean, the first the, the, the pitch before, he fouled it off. I mean, he, he, he just barely got to it. But you watch Devers be, before the ball comes out of Chapman's hand. He's, he's geared up for 105. If he would have thrown any kind of slider at, at, at mid-80s, low-80s, his slider's a little bit faster than that. But if he would have thrown a slider at mid-80s, Devers, Devers is swinging. If he would have not even thrown a pitch, he would have swung. So what that's you're, how geared up he was to swing. So what you're saying is there are two factors. One is that the rest of the league is almost caught up to Chapman, not actually, right. but but the gap. It used to be when he first came up, how many years ago was that? Eight, uh, nine years. He's 103, the highest guy. And the highest was got the guys. mid-90s. Right, and all of a sudden now you're, the players are seeing 97, 98, 99, even 100, and that gap is just closed, and it's so it's like the tennis ball coming out of the bazooka. They just right. get used to it. And right. the other thing you're saying is Chapman just hasn't adapted. I mean, he needs an off-speed pitch that he can throw for strikes and use more. And, and he needs to use it. And, and, he, and, he also, and he also needs to throw some fastballs in off the plate. Like, if he'd have thrown a fastball, like about, say, eight inches in off the plate, down and in the Devers, the Devers might have broke his ankle trying to get out of the way of the ball because he's just so geared up for a swing. So one of the things that you do... When, as, a, as a pitcher, especially to the premier hitters, you want to throw a considerable amount of fastballs about 10, 12 inches in below the waist because now you have to move your feet. One of the reasons why these hitters are so good, that the premier hitters, they have an unbelievable foundation and, and they have this unbelievable balance. And if you can disrupt that on a consistent basis, it throws off your equilibrium. So now I, gotta, now I have to move my feet to get out of the way of this pitch. So I kind of disrupted this. Now I have to stand back up there. Like you watch golfers in, in high winds, even putters. They stand over a putt, and the high wind is actually moving them. And they have to, sometimes they stand away from it because the gust of wind, I mean, you're only, you're only talking about a three-foot putt, how much balance you need for a three-foot putt. But, but you see them walk away from a putt and come back because it disrupted their balance. You know, they're constantly moving their feet to get that really solid, you know, foundation. And if you go back when Pujols was with the Cardinals and, and they won the World Series, his last trip, I believe, into, in, into the World Series with the Cardinals, in, in that World Series they did a good job of, of controlling Pujols. You can't shut him down. He's, at that point of his career, he's too good. But they controlled him, and they controlled him because every, in every single game he probably had at least five or six fastballs that were in about 12 inches, 18 inches in off the plate, below his waist, somewhere about knee-high, thigh-high, knee-high. And, and if Chapman started doing that, like if he had, he, but in order to do that, you have to be ahead of the count. You can't do that behind the count because now you're further behind the count. So if he can get into the count with some breaking stuff and use his breaking stuff and throw some fastballs that are in off the plate that a hitter has to respect to move his feet, and I just can't sell out on a swing and I can't just cheat, cheat my brains out to try to get to this, he, he'll, he, he would have success in, instantaneously. But, but what you want to be able to do as a pitching coach, you want to be able to kind of see this proactively and say, okay, here's Chapman comes to the big leagues. He's 100-plus, whatever. He's throwing more 100-mile-an-hour pitches than anybody. You know, there's, not, there's nobody else in the league right now throwing 100. And you start to look at this and say, okay, this will last as long as he's still, like, winning stuffed animals at the, at the circus because he throws so hard. But once there's other people that throw that hard, 
here's the here's the progression that he's going to have to make moving forward. And if he and if he could have done that proactively, he wouldn't be going through the struggles. But when you watch it, it's 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 dead obvious. Yeah, it's definitely watching. it's definitely painful to watch. I like I like this idea of, of of kind of like using variation of your pitches to to disrupt a hitter. I really like that perspective. Who do you think is the best in the major leagues doing that right now? Well, there's many. Granky's the master at it. You know, Bumgarner when he's healthy, Kershaw when he's healthy. I mean, when you watch these guys, I mean, I mean, you look at Kershaw. I mean, he's still 92, 94. He can touch a 95 once in a while. He's, he, I, I believe, before he had his setback, he's like throwing 48, 49 percent fastballs. He, you know, he, he's not, he's not set 60, 70 percent fastballs. You're seeing more and more pitchers, you know, go to less fastballs. The, the high fastball is coming back again, but it's a dangerous pitch because it depends on how high. What, what people don't realize. Each hitter, how high you have to get it is is a certain is a certain height, and you have to be able to know that, you know, coming coming into it. like going back <clears throat> when when I was in the big leagues, like Posada, for example, like Posada really struggled with an elevated fastball. Elevated to Posada was about six inches above his belt buckle. Pujols struggles with an elevated fastball. Elevated to Pujols has to be chin high. You go six inches above the belt. He's, you're watching him run around the bases. <laughs> I mean, that's what it comes. So, to. Rick, let me ask you one last question here, just because since we're almost out of time, um, you just mentioned someone, um, you know, uh, Kershaw for the Dodgers. Um, you obviously coached and were around some of the greats of all time. You know, the big three in Atlanta: Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz. Obviously, you know, the the big three in Oakland as well. How good and how historic is Clayton Kershaw from what you've seen? And I'm not going to ask you to rank order him against other Hall of Fame players, which are great too. But how great is Kershaw? He's at, he's at, he's right there at the top of the list. I mean, anybody that you want to mention, you know, he's in that he's in that conversation. You know, I, I think for him, it's going to be, you know, it, he obviously has a vulnerability in his back. I mean, this is reoccurring, um, which is concerning, really. I mean, it, it's not like you know, it's not like he, you know, tweaked it like taking batting practice or something. I mean, this is the same. It's the same vulnerability. So hopefully, he's going to be able to, you know, have a daily regime. Getting back to Tom Brady's point, he'd have a daily regime that's going to like really take care of his back to allow him to continue to pitch. Because it would be a shame, a shame for all of us that are baseball fans not to really appreciate and enjoy the greatness of, of Clayton Kershaw. But I also think, too, in order for him to, to dot the I and cross the T on his greatness, he's going to have to start doing this in the postseason. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Rick, thanks for your time this morning. We'd like to thank thanks, you. Rick. This has been Rick Peterson, major, former Major League Pitching Coach for the Mets, A's, Brewers, and Orioles. He's now a sought-after motivational speaker, co-author of Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most, and, of course, an every-other-week guest here on Wharton Moneyball in our Call to the Bullpen segment. So, Rick, we'll talk to you in a few weeks. Thanks for your time this morning. Awesome, guys. Always a pleasure. Yeah, talk to you soon. So that's been Rick Peterson. That's three-quarters of our show. we got lots to talk about. We've got a big tennis tournament coming up. We've got football coming up. So please stay with us for the last quarter of our show here on Wharton Moneyball, and we'll talk to you right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Three quarters of our show is done. One quarter to go. Thanks to Danielle Bruno, our associate producer and sound engineer, for the 
lively music coming back for the last half hour. Uh, this is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. And again, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And I hope you're following us now and throughout the week on our Twitter feed, at WMoneyBall. So, guys, uh, Rick Peterson said something very interesting, which will allow me to transition to two other sports that are very relevant this week. But he mentioned something about having the batter, having his feet planted in some sense. As a pitcher, you got to kind of move somebody around a little bit. Um, it's not unrelated to what we talked about about baseball. One could argue, you know, let any basketball player shoot an uncontested, you know, feet planted jumper. They're going to bury that, too. So, any thoughts from you guys on Rick's comment about, you know, in some sense, you got to get the hitter, the shooter, the quarterback. Maybe it's the hockey player. you got to get them off balance because if you allow any professional athlete of good quality the time to set up and shoot, throw, you know, aim at the goal, you know, shoot a three-pointer, the, the percentage drops, is, increases tremendously as opposed to when they're on the move. Well, so, I mean— when we were discussing this with Rick, uh, the person who popped into my mind was Pedro Martinez. And I, I remember, you know, during his uh, very successful career, everybody would talk about, I mean, he was obviously famous for brushing back batters yep. and getting people out of their comfort zone. And everybody attributed that sort of just to, oh, well, that's just his competitive spirit. He's got this intensity. Right. You know, he really, you know, he wants to go ever after every batter because that's just sort of the way he he's wired. But... This is actually a here. Here we have more of a kind of kind of mechanism, like you know, reason that he was doing that, more directly tied to the actual act of you know this you know kind of interplay between pitching and hitting. It wasn't just his competitive spirit; he was doing it with a purpose, which was to get batters to have to readjust their you know their their feet and and their swing after every single pitch. So it's, it traditionally was used in baseball to, uh, to the brush back pitch. Yeah, right. Was used. Because you didn't want the batters having control over that outside of the plate by, by by standing too close. Right. But what we're hearing from Rick is it's not about control of the outside of the plate. It's about not being able to plant yourself, which is what you need if you're going to hit a 103-mile-per-hour fastball. you got to just be anchored and ready. And by getting yourself moving, it's almost like you're imbalanced all the time. And, and yeah, Pedro used to do used to be used to be much more part of the game. Um, the umpires also have, have looked – I mean, have changed the way their view of brushback pitch. Probably for the right you – know, rightly, you shouldn't be throwing at people. But we're not talking about throwing at people. We're just <laughs> really kind of throwing at – but 12 the inches inside is getting pretty close to someone's foot. But you could also argue that from a statistical perspective, having the batter readjust and everything, let's say between pitches, as Shane pointed out, could add an error, a random error component, which damages the batter's ability. In other yep. words, it's adding now, so am I adjusting to exactly the right place? Am I going to be able to reproduce the same swing? There, there could be lots of, as you're pointing out, Adi, it's not about you know controlling the outside part of the plate. I'm going to show this batter it's about it's a strategy that's going to work in the long run. Look, we talk about it in football all the time. If we don't get that quarter, why are the why are defensive ends who basically are yeah. one trick ponies that can rush the passer valuable? It's not just hitting the quarterback. It's yeah. if we can't get the quarterback off his spot. Look, I'll pick a 
mediocre quarterback. Ryan Tannehill, will, he's fine. He'll shred any NFL defense if you allow him, not now because he's injured, but if you allow him to stand there. Yeah. Uh, Jay Cutler will shred you if you just allow him to stand there in the pocket untouched and throw clean passes. That's right. I mean, like, you know, I mean, we, we talked about Tom Brady, obviously, a lot in this show. You know, the one team that's figured him out over the last 20 years figured him out by knowing that you just have to have constant pressure on him. You know, the Giants, the Giants. The Giants well, were the able team, to do that. The other team a little bit, the Ravens. I'm not saying, yeah. and, and if you want, the Steelers a little bit. And, I'm just and, saying. And, and the Atlanta Falcons for a half, but then they ran out of gas. Yes. Right. Those three teams figure. Well, that's always been the thing about Brady is that he just, yeah. I mean, it's it's wonderful when we're allowed to make, we, when we're able to make yeah. connections between different sports on this show. And you kind of got to get the person not being able to plant. So yeah, that, that's, that's right. That's right. So I wanted to transition to a big sporting event coming up. Uh, I'm, you would think I'm going to the U.S. Open tennis, but I'm not. I'm going to get to that in a second. Um, there's actually a massive fight coming oh, up yeah. this yeah. Saturday night. There is. Merriweather versus Mayweather uh, versus Mayweather. McGregor. Right. Right. Mayweather right. versus McGregor. And, of course, just to make sure everybody knows, um, for the people that don't necessarily follow this sport on Morton Moneyball, um, Floyd Mayweather, many consider maybe the greatest boxer of all time. Um, he's forty nine and zero, he, so he's tied Rocky Marciano for the. And what class is this? This is like the lightweight or uh, felter featherweight or. I think it's it's, it's one hundred fifty four. Yeah. One hundred fifty four is the weight class, which I think is middleweight. It's a middleweight weight class, so similar to what like Sugar Ray Leonard, Thomas Hearns, Roberto Duran all fought at that weight limit. Um, Mayweather is fighting Conor McGregor, who's like one of the greatest MMA fighters of all time. Now, of course, he's not going to be able to kick him. He's not going to be able to put him in a headlock. So they're playing by boxing rules. They're playing by boxing rules. One of the greatest boxers of all time going up against one of the greatest MMA MMA fighters fighters of all time. time. Right. In a boxing boxing match. (laughs) Right. So my question is... It seems a pretty easy one to predict. Well, so just so you know, um, most of the betting money has gone on McGregor, the MMA guy. Just to let you know, it's basically it's a four-to-one odds fight. I'm thinking... Should be four thousand to one. So, can you guys help me understand, like, how can somebody who's zero and zero in the boxing ring, and he's not going up against a mediocre, he's going up against forty nine and oh, and by the way, Mayweather just beat one of the great other champions, Manny Pacquiao. You can't touch Mayweather. Well, let, let's just so back up before we happen? get to this particular. We'll talk about yeah. the NBA playoffs the last couple of years. By the models, were over ninety percent for the Warriors. The betting money wasn't anything close to that, which is why Las Vegas always took the side of the of the favorite because they Correct. were having to pay out at odds that weren't even close to what they should be paying out because so many people were willing to take the bet on the other side. The public doesn't like to bet on uh, uh, doesn't put the money on the favorites because it doesn't look good. I mean, what are you also, winning? You're winning yeah, uh, I bet hundred dollars to win twenty, yeah. right? So How people, is that going to happen? So this creates a huge bias on the other side, and and what ends up happening is the Vegas gives the bets that people are willing to take them. Um, the question is, are they getting? They're taking it. I think they're taking it ridiculous odds. I mean, people are, are getting uh, four to one. Um, that's not enough to take no. McGregor. You need to be getting ten to one. I don't know why people are doing it. Well, and, and, and if I'm going to place a bet on the fight, I'm waiting because they say this is the classic thing that happens in boxing and any sport. The smart late money is going to come in on Mayweather, but they're waiting for the odds to drop. By the way, it was you had to put it. It was 10 to 1 when Mayweather started. Now it's down to 5 to 1. You know, there's the spread in between. I'm hoping if it goes down to 3 or 4 to 1, I'm definitely betting on Mayweather. I think I, I 
so confident he's going to win the fight. You can make 15% on your money. There you go. Absolutely. I love that in the stock market over the year. That would be great. In one night? In <laughs> one night? That would be fantastic. I mean, Shin, what are you thinking about this? How can, let's, from a statistical perspective, let me just go with that for one second. Is there any way to say there's a comparable set? There's a way to think about it. Like, we're just pulling it well, out of our well, rears I mean, that the odds are 10 is, to 1. Is, Why not 1,000 to 1? Certainly, no certainly this is the most high-profile fight of this type that we've ever seen. But this can't be the first time that somebody has transitioned from MMA yeah. to boxing. I think it is. I mean, Is it really is. the first I don't know the time? Answer, I can't. It, certainly. I mean, again, first time it's been high. Was he a boxer first? I mean, usually they come into no, MMA from no, somewhere no, else. No. no. But he was probably, most of the time, the MMA fighters, most of the time, are trained in some martial arts uh-huh. or, mm-hmm. like, you know, maybe it's jiu-jitsu, judo, because, you know, they're or they're grapplers, wrestlers, etc. because most fights in MMA are actually not won by punches. Yeah. They're won by submission holds Submissions and other hold. stuff I mean, like that. He, uh, so, I mean, Gregor went up against the punching bag, and I thought the punching bag won. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't look good. So, Shane, how, how are you <laughs> thinking about this fight? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking with you guys. I think it's 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 crazy that this fight's even happening. I mean, it's obviously just publicity, Money I think, more than it. Well, yes. No, I can I can see it from their perspective. But um, I, don't, I don't think McGregor has any chance. Um, I think... The only way you could argue somehow is that his style of MMA is maybe a little bit, e- even if there hasn't been a, a, a pool of player of people in the past that have done this transition. Perhaps his style of MMA fighting is more capable of transitioning. But I still, I mean, to transition and then go up against one of the all-time greats is, I think, crazy to me. So one of the yeah. things that I did read, when you can, I'll toss this out, and it's almost like give, keeping, it's almost akin to the advice that, that uh, Rick was giving to Aroldis Chapman. He's got to do something that's going to get Merriweather uh, Mayweather, confused. Yeah. Mayweather confused. And, yes. and, and, and that's the only chance. And we don't know how to... It's like quant- kicking him in the face well, in the first actually, round. Well, you, actually, you ain't kidding. I mean, the, and, you, know, you are kidding, sort of. But, I am. But He'd one of the things... Well, that's why but, the but, contracts are laden with, no, if yeah. you do this, you forfeit all your right. money. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. so right, yeah. because it's very... But he's got to push the barrier of legality. Well, well so I assume what's going to happen is he's going to, what they call in boxing, bum rush the guy. Like, he's going to come out just swinging wildly. Maybe he'll take 10 punches to give Lynn one punch, but that has to be because he can't just, he's not going to beat Mayweather as a boxer. But so Mayweather is one of the best he's defense. The he's not, he's, not, he's not just a great fighter of he's all a great time. Defensive he's probably fighter. the greatest defensive boxer of all time. And, I mean, people people don't like him for that reason because it, it turns into relatively boring fights, exactly. right? But, but I think this one May not be so boring. I don't. I mean, if McGregor there, lasts a couple rounds, I'll be. Is there you know, any? Surprised. And by the way, I think more, more people are interested in the prop bets on the fight than the actual yeah. outcome of the fight. What and, are they? Some of them. Well, you know, how, how many rounds? The standard or? how many rounds it's going to last? Will Mayweather be able to knock out McGregor? Is is one right. of the big bets yeah. that are people are taking? So, like, well, Mayweather will outpoint him, but he's not going to knock out McGregor. I personally think he will knock him out because if you're not, I mean, McGregor is going to be exhausted. I mean, if you're not a boxer and you're not used to twelve rounds of boxing, have you ever either of you ever gone into a boxing ring? <laughs> I'm just, t- no, I'm not saying, t- I'm not saying fighting somebody. I'm Talk just saying about a training. 
in a boxing ring. <laughs> I'm just saying, just even boxing by yourself for three minutes, you're exhausted. And he's going against the greatest champion of all yeah. time. He'll no, be dead crazy. on his feet. So I it's think crazy. I think Mayweather may be able to McGregor's blow on be, him. is in good shape, but it's, it's giving but him some credit. But that's a different, it's a different yeah, kind no, of I, shape. It's just, it dip, well, we'll see on Saturday. I'll be watching the fight. Either of you guys going to watch oh, the yeah, fight? Watch is it only on pay-per-view? Yeah, it's on pay-per-view. Well, I'll be on a plane to Israel where I'm beginning my sabbatical. So, Well, I'll tell by the way, I will be texting for those people. Again, we're here on Wharton Moneyball, Sirius XM Business Radio 111, powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow. I'm here with Shane Jensen and Nadi Weiner. I will be tweeting at W Moneyball throughout the fight. So for all of you that are fans and listeners, I'll be giving you the round-by-round analysis throughout the fight, my updated prediction probabilities of who's winning the fight and their probability of winning the fight. So please follow us uh, during the sh- during the fight this Saturday night. It's 9 p.m. Eastern um, at W Moneyball. So let me transition now to another big event that's starting next week, which is the U.S. Open in tennis. But there's a reason I want to point out to that. It's not unrelated to the Brady thing mm-hmm, about age. Mm-hmm. So it comes up every time we talk about men's tennis, at least. Well, that's what I want to. That's what I want to talk about. So in men's tennis, we may be seeing the changing of the guard, and let me say why. I don't mean the fact that Roger Federer has won two majors this year and Nadal has won the other one. So that's no changing of the guard. But I'd like your opinion on this. So Novak Djokovic out for the season now with injuries. Stan Wawrinka out for the season with injuries. Kei Nishikori, who's the number six player in the world, out for the rest of the season with injuries. For the first time ever, two new players, I told you, forget just the majors, 58 of the last 60 Masters 1000 events, which are just below the majors, were won by Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, Wawrinka, and Murray. The last two have been won by Alex Zverev and Grigor Dimitrov. These are these two young guns, new guys to actual, uh, new guys to you know, come into tennis. Are we seeing the changing of the guard? Is this the last stand of Nadal and Federer? And essentially, injuries are going to end Djokovic and Rarinka's career. And Murray, by the way, is very injured now as well. He may play the U.S. Open. Is this kind of the last stand? And we're already seeing evidence of, you know, maybe there's going to be a new U.S. Open champ. I mean, I, I think you are sort of seeing a, a, sh- a shift over the generations. Again, I... This does really link up to this sort of like discussion of Brady before because we were arguing between kind of a long, slow decline decline versus a, you know, a real phase transition, like a precipitous decline. I personally believe that there is a changing of the guard going on, but I do not think it will be particularly dramatic. Like, I think, you know, next year. You know, maybe one of these new guys busts into, like, the semifinals or finals. But I think, you know, when we look at the finals at the majors next year, it's going to be a similar cast of characters we've been seeing over the so last you're not, five years. So you're not a believer that it's the precipitous decline? I do not believe. So- I, I do, I, I, because, again, I think I look at Federer and Nadal, and, I, I, you know, I kind of like, to the extent that we can kind of predict greatness like you know and and kind of like people holding off aging curves it's due to training it's due to style and they they seem to really you know federer especially seems to be pretty resistant well i want to go back to a topic that you made shane regarding to brady which is the you know the will not let play you every day um that's what Federer does. Yeah. Federer didn't play for six months. He was injured. Yeah. Then he won the Australian. Then he, then he basically uh, didn't chose not to play the French mm-hmm. intentionally, won Wimbledon. Yeah. Now he's played one or two tune-up tournaments, but basically hasn't played really since Wimbledon. So what you're also suggesting is 
he doesn't have to be the Roger Federer of old that wins 20 tournaments. Yeah. He just has to go. And by the way, he'll probably never play the French again, because why would he? He won one. He knows he can't beat Nadal there anyway. Yeah. He's going to gear up for the three majors, maybe play 10 total tournaments a year, and that's the way you stave off the aging curve. And yeah. maybe the same's going to happen with Brady. That's, no, that's exactly right. I mean, again, Brady, ha, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, Federer has even more kind of degrees of freedom to pick his own schedule, right? I mean, he, he can literally choose which tournaments to play and which ones not to play. Um, so, no, I, I think that he'll do exactly that. And I think Nadal will do that. And maybe even, you know, Djokovic and Murray and these players will start doing that themselves. I, I, and I think to a certain extent, it might be it, it might be interesting because, again, in basketball, when teams do this, you know, for, with their with their top players, there's pushback because Absolutely. fans go to the game. They want to see LeBron. I wonder if there will be start being if, if you see a large part of this kind of like current generation of great players you know, skipping tournaments, there might be pushback from, you know... Well, I the, think what you're going to see is you're going to see the... the, the well, you went just where I went. The yeah. ATP is going to come up with some yeah. rules that say, you know, you must play this number of tournaments to get ranked. And if, you know, I think the pros probably, to the best of their ability, will play the major events. And the, actually, they do have this. You have to play a certain number of events to be at this year-end top eight championships. You don't qualify for right. it if you don't play. But to Federer, he might be like, who cares about yeah, that? Yeah. I, I don't care about that. By the way, anybody want to guess? I think Adi might be able to see my screen. So, Shane, I'll have you guess. What do you think? I'll, play, I'll tell you that Federer is the favorite for the yep. U.S. Open. What do you think are his odds of winning? Like, what do you think the betting odds are for Federer right now? Oh, I would give him, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, would, I would say 50-50 probably on him, right? Him against the rest of the field. Yeah. Well, you're not off. It's 5-4. to four. Okay. I'm shocked. You think yes. it's too high? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Five. To, well, five to four is the pay is the is the payoff odd. So the yeah. four ninths is what they're paying off, which means that they believe it's probably forty five. But I mean, well, we, no. I mean, we we, we no, four it's paying off at four to nine. We, but it's the true odds are always a little lower. Yeah. Okay. Than, but let's so say it's thirty five to forty percent. Yeah, I still think that's high. Well, I I think what it ends up I, I think what it, it ends up with is how let's let's take the best case scenario you would you would say is you're so confident he's going to make the final four. And he's the heavy favorite amongst the final four. Yeah. But again, I go back to my comment. I said this for four and a half years until he won the Australian. Sometimes you just takes one day yeah. where you get the old Federer, not the old Federer, and he loses. And then all of a sudden, he, he's got to play five good matches to get to the final four. I just I just think that's way overstated. Do you have a different opinion, Shane? Oh, I mean, I just... I mean, you, uh, you're the one that said 50-50. Yeah, no, no, I mean, the, the, my very quick calculation was thinking about what his competition is, and his competition is against uh, essentially... Nadal, Murray. Nadal plus Mur- random Zverev, people. Zverev, and Nadal, Murray, and a bunch of randoms in yeah, your view. Yeah, that's right. And I and I guess I attributed about, like, I, I think he, he will beat, you know, Nadal... You know, more times than Nadal will he- beat him, despite so, their historical record against each other. You think? That, I mean, is, subtract out the French. Uh, subtract uh, first for on they're that at 500, surface. Right. On if you that subtract surface, out clay, they're basically at five hundred. That's right. And 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 so and I, but I I think Federer is playing a little bit better right now than Nadal. So I I put them at like say I put Nadal at forty percent. I put random person at ten percent. But you would certainly take Federer and Nadal against the field at this yeah. point. Would you, yeah. Adi? Federer and Nadal against the field? I I'd would, but I would put the. I think I would probably put the com- combination at about fifty percent. Wow, and that's probably where I would be too. I would be, and I might even throw in. To be honest with you, I might even throw in Murray. Now, I, I'm I might, not so big. These guys are Murray's injured. The field. 
No, I'm, I want to put Murray into Federer Nadal Murray oh, get at 50%. Over. Oh, at 50%. Okay. Not much okay. more okay. than not 50 much. Now, I the think odds Murray's suggest i got to really cheer for Federer. I'm going to look like an idiot here. Well, I hope Federer wins. <laughs> well, I'm rooting the, for we're Federer. Saying he's the, I'm saying he's the likely. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's the, not the likely. He's not the, he, but I'd say he's about a highest third. Probability highest player, probability player, but less than 50%. I think if you throw in Nadal and Federer, you're looking at about 50%, and I'm giving the field. I mean, they're old, and, and that just makes the question mark always an important consideration. Yeah, it's just guys, we have about a minute left, just our last one. I was looking at um, just one thing. Um, any, catching your eye in baseball around, isn't the wild card the greatest thing in baseball, the fact that they've added these? I love these? that they've changed the, because I love the format of right it. right now, forget yep. the Yankees, who maybe are in the number one spot of 57. We have the Twins at 60 losses, the Angels 61, the Royals 61, the Mariners 63, the Rangers 63. Keep, We've it, got it, the Orioles 65, the Rays at 65. We've got five Blue Jays te- are in. It, keeps more, it, it both keeps more teams competitive, but also severely incentivizes winning the division. So I, I, yeah. I think I love well, the format of it. Well, let me just say, um, I love it, too. It's been a great show here on Morton Moneyball this morning. Uh, again, this has been Eric Bradlow. I'm here with uh, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. We'd like to thank both of our guests that we had today. We had Scott Kasmer uh, from uh, Football Outsiders, who was telling us about his tiered ranking system. I love the idea that he's not trying to exactly rank, that he's putting them in tiers. Uh, we talked about Rick Peters. We talked to Rick Peterson in our Call to the Bullpen segment. Um, we learned a lot about, as Adi pointed out, um, it's not to control the plate or being machismo. Um, it's you know getting someone to move their feet. It's actually uh, I thought that was a great takeaway from today's show, and um, I loved also what uh, Shane said earlier about high variance, and sometimes you want high variance players. So this has been a great two hours. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody. Thank our producer Matt Datz. Thank our uh, associate producer uh, Daniel Bruno. Uh, this has been Eric Bradley with Shane Jensen, Nadi Weiner. Uh, Between now and next week, in which we'll be back on Morton Moneyball, enjoy your sports, enjoy the big fight, enjoy the tennis of the U.S. Open. We'll see you next week here on Morton Moneyball.